Hello, Sac State students. The week of Monday, October 19th, the State Hornet held its first ever live event on Twitch, the Hornet Speaker series of Q&As. Wesley Lowry's Q&A, which originally aired live Monday, October 19th. We have two more of these events coming up in November, so please stay tuned and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Ian Ratliff. I'm the broadcast editor for the State Hornet here, and I am joined today by Stephanie Nunez, one of our reporters, as well as Wesley Lowry, our um, guest here today for the Hornet Speaker Series. Wesley Lowry graduated from Ohio University and started his career at the LA Times before moving to the Boston Globe. Lowry is known for his work at the Washington Post and his project Fatal Force, which created a database to track police shootings, and it was the first of its kind and became a model for the United States Department of Justice, who started a pilot program to track use of force statistics in 2017. This work on this project won him the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting. Lowry is the author of two books, They Can't Kill Us All, The Story of Black Lives Matter, and Ferguson, Three Minutes That Changed America. Both books detail the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and the impact they had on American discourse. Currently, Lowry is a 60 Minutes correspondent for the 60 in 6 short-form spin-off series of the very popular 60 Minutes on Quibi. So with that, I will hand it over to Stephanie, and she will go ahead and start asking our uh, very gracious guest questions. Hey, Wesley. So our first question is, um, how did you get into journalism, and when did you know it was what you wanted to do for your career? Sure. Uh, thanks so much for asking. You know, I um, I got into journalism pretty young. I had moved to Cleveland in eighth grade and had no friends because that's what happens when you move in eighth grade and was looking for some like clubs and organizations to get involved in. And so I joined two things, the soccer team and the school newspaper. And I wasn't that good at soccer, but I was enough of a nerd for the school newspaper. And so uh, befriended folks there, ended up spending all four years in high school at the at the paper. By the time I finished high school, went on to college and spent all four years of college at the paper. And it just became increasingly clear that this was not just something that I really loved and enjoyed, but also something I was pretty good at. And so it really clarified for me, both going from high school to college and then college into my profession, uh, that this was the thing I wanted to do. There was something very intoxicating, very seduce or seductive about, about the idea that I could spend my days um, calling people smarter than me and asking them questions and they had to answer them or that I could wake up knowing nothing about something and by the end of the day be able to talk about it and write about it with some level of authority and so um, for me journalism is just an extension of learning a, a means of finding out more about the world all around us and I was never the best at book learning or homework or going to classes, but I enjoy talking to people and I enjoy reading, I enjoy researching. And so there, there was a lot to be said um, for kind of what I got out of doing journalism. And so it was clear very early on to me that this is what I wanted to do. And then only a little over a week, a week ago, you mentioned to students in the University of Wisconsin School of Journalism and Mass Communication that quote, we can't conduct journalism in 2020 based on the rule book written in 1980. Why? Because the players have changed, the actors have changed, the dynamics have changed. Could you elaborate? Sure. I, mean, I think a lot is, a ton has changed in our industry if you look at um, the last decade or, or recent years. You know, the media is in many ways contracted and changed where it is, uh, that we don't have daily newspapers in as many places as we once did. A lot of the small local press is closing down. 
Um, it's been replaced by a ton of um, digital upstarts and websites uh, of varying quality, some of which are great, others of which are kind of content farms. So the media landscape itself has changed pretty drastically. What's also true is the way that people interact with us has changed. They see us on social media, they interact with us digitally, they're consuming news via news feeds on Facebook and Twitter and other places like that. That wasn't true just 15 years ago, not very long ago. Um, most people were still interacting with us through our homepages, through our newscasts, through our actual newspapers, uh, versus now we've seen a flattening of the media landscape where more people are interacting with just kind of these disembodied links that show up in their feed. It can be very difficult sometimes for the average reader to navigate and negotiate how much to trust various things they're seeing. And that's true not just when they're seeing things they shouldn't trust, but also when they're seeing things they should. The other thing I think that's happened with social media is that I think that media has been democratized in a lot of ways. More people can speak directly to us, can critique us directly. And I think that can be both a good thing and a bad thing, right? It's, it's allowed all types of folks who otherwise uh, were not um, able to get the attention of the media to now get the attention of the media. But also in democratizing news, it, that further has flattened the difference between the work we're doing versus what some citizen journalist or bloggers doing or some person with a Twitter account who's just saying all types of things. And it's continued to create even more of a wild west in terms of readers encountering coverage, encountering journalism, encountering media, and knowing what to do with it, knowing how to interact with it. In your book, They Can't Kill Us All, you address the issue of it taking white reporters writing for white audiences to finally address the inequality that black communities had faced for decades. You asked the question, was the lens of whiteness required for the nation to accurately recognize the black experience? Do you think that's changed in recent years? So I think a few things are true. I think that we still operate in an industry, in a field that is largely run by white editors and staffed by white reporters. So it's not to say that there are not reporters and journalists of color in various newsrooms. There are, and they do great work. Uh, but we know that the numbers in terms of newsroom diversity, at least in the States, haven't changed significantly going back to the 70s or 80s, right? That we're still talking about a very small subsection of our newsrooms. Um, and, and even at a time when there's increased focus on issues of equity, inclusion, diversity, we still do deal with a deficit of storytellers with literal skin in the game in these stories, much less editors and bosses who have experience and expertise in these spaces. And I, th I think that's still a real issue. Uh, what, I, what I also say, though, is I think that as we, as we look at some of the major stories of the last decade, uh, what we see are stories that finally gained attention but had been being told locally and by the people in the communities indefinitely, uh, but those people were, unbe were unbelieved, right? So for example, um, if you look at Ferguson, you look at the other coverage of police shootings, you look at the conversation around media and, and, and race, right? It's not that the police began killing people in 2014, rather it was that we, the collective we decided to care about it. Um, in the same way that it's not that men started to be creeps or sexually harassing people in 2015 and 16, it was that suddenly a bunch of men were like, oh, we should put this in the newspaper, right? It, it, that, it, that again, when we look at some of these major stories, right, these are stories of minority communities that have always told their truth and have been disbelieved by a power structure in which they're the minority. And that in this moment, in large part because of the democratization led by social media, 
they are able to get those stories out and have those stories be heard. In that same talk, and at various points in your career, you have used that on the idea of objectivity in journalism. Um, in an age where journalists will often be called fake no matter what they print, how much do you think we should be striving toward the idea of, of objectivity today? Look, I, I think that, you know, it's a, co- it's a complicated conversation. And I, and I think that a few things are true. The first is that I think the word objectivity in our profession has become so muddy. Of course, we should strive for fairness in our coverage. We should strive to write down the truth uh, and the best discernible version of the truth. And, and we should attempt to the extent possible to rid uh, that journalism of unfairness, of slant, of that said, in our kind of modern nomenclature and the culture of mainstream journalism, the way it has been passed down, objectivity has come to mean a bunch of other things. It's come to mean neutrality. It's come to mean balance. It's come to mean things that are not what objectivity means. Um, if I write about a murder, you shouldn't walk away from the piece feeling neutral about it. When you look at the history of, of American journalism, the advent of the invention of a system of objectivity was explicitly about creating a process that could be replicated because we accepted and understood that no individual journalist journalist was objective. And now in our common conversation, we very often have conversations about how I am an objective journalist, right? That doesn't exist. There is no such thing. And and so I actually think the the cultural failure to accept the reality that each of us individually does have subjective biases in fact, leads to more bias entering our work uh, than if we admitted up front that, well, no, we're not individually objective. That's why we have to make sure we go through a process, right? When we talk about distrust in the media, we talk about a few things. Uh, first, we can't pretend as if there hasn't been a major campaign by a major political party that currently holds the White House dating back to the Nixon years of publicly disparaging and undermining the a free press in the United States of America. Um, and so I would argue a big part of the reason the public doesn't trust us is because there are millions of people being told not to trust us right? um, by their political party, um, which, and, and we know in this moment in our, in our culture and society, political affiliation for a lot of people is a stand-in almost for religion. Secondarily though, um, I think that when we look at fake news, we look at the conversation around media trust, a lot of it is, is less about the suggestion of us calling balls and strikes, but I think a lot of it is in fact downstream from the speed with which a lot of journalism operates. We have all clicked on a link where the headline oversold what the article actually provided. We've all followed a story from one day to the next and seen how it's changed drastically as additional information was available. We've all learned that we read beyond the headlines for these precise reasons. And so I think that the president currently, as well as others who've invoked that term, while they've often used it to attack uh, the free press to attack journalists in ways that I think are dangerous and, and, and not good. Uh, I think it speaks to underlying societal frustration that is real. You report on some of the most sensitive issues in America and perhaps one of the most anti-media climates um, America, America has ever seen. Emotionally, mentally, physically, how do you keep going when the subjects are you are covering are so hor- horrifying and the responses can be demoralizing or intimidating? Uh, One thing for me is that I've got a lot of clarity on what my role as a journalist is. And that role in a lot of ways is to write true things down now, whether they're believed or accepted or not. I think that sometimes there can be a naivete or a 
idealism in which we think I'm just gonna write this story and I'm gonna change the world. But rather our job as journalists is to write down the truth, whether that truth is popular, whether it pulls well, whether it um, has us become beloved or not. I, I think that's a really big part of my thinking around my role and my job. Again, my job is not to be popular. Rather, my job is to the best of my ability to write down the discernible truth, to ask hard questions, to hold powerful people accountable and to account. All that said, I, I, I don't think, I, I don't mean to suggest that it's not important for us as journalists to try to do things to engender trust. I think it's important to build the kind of civic education around how the media functions and how it operates so that we have engaged citizenry. Um, and, and I think that one of the biggest mistakes we make is defaulting to defensiveness and not trying to sit introspectively with those critiques, with that feedback, to try to make sure that we are doing uh, the, be the best work we possibly can be doing. And you've been doing this for about 10 years. Um, one of your first major instances was when you got in contact with George Zimmerman. How was that emotionally? Like, what was going on through your head? So I remember that I was in college. This was during the Trayvon Martin case in 2012. And I remember, you know, George Zimmerman had set up a, a third party website to fundraise. Like he kind of did, he went rogue and made his own website and his lawyers were like, what the hell's going on? And I remember looking up his email address, like uh, who, who had registered the website, just emailing him, like, hey, is this George Zimmerman? And, uh, and I was having a short correspondence around that. And I, and I think that it was kind of, it reinforced something that I love about this profession in this field, which is that like, you can go out there and ask people questions. You can reach out to folks, like you're not limited by anything. Um, and that in these moments of confusion, of chaos, like you can send the email, you can make the phone call, you can go knock on the door. Um, I remember during the Trayvon Martin case, uh, interacting with Ben Crump on the legal team and Trayvon Martin's family. And I was just this kind of undergrad doing some of this reporting. Again, I look back at the reporting now and go, oh, I could have done a lot better. But the reality was I was a kid and I had access to these newsmakers and people who really mattered and, and which created an opportunity for my journalism to really matter. And so I think the lesson in it is that there's nothing holding any of us back from doing this work. We could always, it's, it's always, why not you? You can always reach out. You can always make the phone call. Uh, a journalist is a journalist. And, and, I, and I believe really strongly in the power of student journalism. With the coverage you do specifically, you have to go and kind of insert yourself into one of a lot of people's worst moment of their lives. And then you mentioned in your book that you kind of uh, start off questioning with asking how those victims or people who lost someone, you know, what will they remember them of or uh, what they will think best of when they reflect back on that character. How do you develop a trust with the interviewee? Most people want to talk to you and knowing that is important. It helps you think about how you navigate. You know, as journalists, we often show up on either the best day of someone's life or the worst day of someone's life. They've won the Powerball or their son has been killed. Oftentimes, especially the people who are going through something traumatic want to talk. They want to use that as a means of processing what's happening and processing what they're going through. And so I think that we want to um, be sensitive to that. I think, we, I think that part of it always as a journalist is making sure that we're engaging people and interacting with people in ways that feel personally and interpersonally humane, right? And so what I mean by that is, you know, how would I want 
this, how would I want someone showing up at my mother's house at her doorstep? Would I want them showing a camera in her face? Would I want them politely asking, you know, the way we interact with people does help determine what we get and what we don't get, right? Uh, the clarity with which we interact with people. You don't ever want to talk to someone who's in a traumatic situation and they think they're going to be on the cover of a magazine and you're using them for one quote or vice versa. <laughs> you don't want to write a 7,000 word profile of someone who thinks that they're just giving you some background information, right? And so that being clear and upfront in terms of the communication about the people who you're interviewing and talking to, what's going to come out of this, what it looks like. I think that's very, very important. Um, and then also, I think that, you know, you want to build the relationship over the course of an interview. What I mean by that is I think sometimes we think about interviews too much, especially as young journalists, we think about interviews too much as job interviews and not enough kind of like dates, right? And what I mean by that is, you're, you're coming into a scenario to build a relationship. So you start with the easy questions, you find common ground, you get a laugh off, you like, and, and over the course of the interaction, you're developing a deeper level of trust and therefore you're able to explore more intimate, more complicated, more difficult topics. As a journalist, how do you com combat misinformation from conspiracy or social media blogs? The inclination used to be to ignore completely right? That if we don't publish it, then it's not really the news or no one really knows about it or we don't have to think about it, right? And, and because of that, and I actually think that was a remarkable mistake um, in, because what it allowed was it, it meant that these internet subcultures festered indefinitely. We had an inflated sense of the extent to which we were gatekeepers of the public discourse when in reality the discourse was happening whether we were choosing to participate or not. So for example, I cover a lot of police shootings and time and time again, there will be a conspiracy theory about the person who's been shot. Some made up formal criminal records, some overstated thing here. And that, look, that's not to say that some of these folks have not had criminal records or other things in their past, but there's always viral memes and fake photos of the person with a gun. Some of that stuff journalistically doesn't take very long to figure out isn't true. And if I can do that, I think it's important for me to say, hey, I looked into this. This is clearly and obviously not true. Like, I think it is our job sometimes as journalists to correct the record. When a lot of people focus on, focus on looting and violence of uh, protests across America, what did you focus on? So I think that there's a few things there. Right, I think that we can, I think it's important for us to tell the truth, no matter what that truth is, right? And so uh, when things turn violent, we explain that. But I also think in the media, we get very obsessed with very unnuanced portrayal in one direction or the other. Um, I think it's cuts in both directions. I think it's pretty dumb to have a television anchor standing in front of a burning building and going, well, the peaceful protest tonight. I mean, like, you look, you're stupid. We obsessed constantly with, do we just, are we gonna describe the protest as peaceful or as violent? Well, you think you're gonna describe an eight, nine hour event that involves thousands of people with one adjective? It's just not going to work, right? Like it's, we're tricking ourselves as if we could group, you know, that again, nuance, nuance and complexity are our friend, right? The thing about being a writer is we can use a whole sentence. We don't have to use one word. A hyper focus on property damage. Like, again, I think it's important for us to document what happens with specificity, but I also don't think that happens very often. Exactly how many buildings were burned down? Where were they in the city? Many times our readers or our viewers walk away believing an entire city has been burned to the ground. And when that has not happened any time in recent years in the United States of America, right? That people thought all of Ferguson was charred and Ferguson is largely a quiet suburb that had been mostly untouched by violence. People think most of Kenosha, Wisconsin had been burned down when you're talking about half a dozen buildings perhaps, right? That's not to minimize what that damage is, but rather to suggest that 
when we're overly simplistic in narrative, we do a disservice because we lead our readers to believe things that are not actually true. And a major opus of yours is perhaps the Washington Post's Fatal Force database on police shootings. When you were covering with such intense subjects with so much humanity involved, such as the sheer volume of citizens killed by police and the fact that it's often underreported, have you ever struggled with getting emotionally overwhelmed? How do you stick to your job without letting emotions get in the way? Certainly. You know, I had a really good editor once who said, the more emotional a story, the less emotional the reporter. And I think that's important. And I think about that in a few different ways. I think, you know, first of all, I think about that in our language a lot, right? One of the ways that bias infects writing and broadcast is through, um, is through emotion, is through adjectives, is through, is us trying to impress upon things. But if a story is outlandish, if it's crazy, if it's intense, if so, we should be able to explain it with the most simple language and the reader will understand that. Right? If something is truly outrageous, we don't need any adjectives. If something is truly heartbreaking, you don't have to say it's heartbreaking, right? That so often, like you just say what happened and allow people's hearts to be broken, right? And so I think that that I think is really, really important. I think the second thing for me is on these issues, right? When we see a, when we see a viral police shooting video or we see one of these cases and people are upset, people worked up, a lot of times, I think for a lot of people, the desire is how do we figure out something to do? Like, what do we do? How do I do something? That's why we see the hashtags trend or money being raised because everyone wants to, they see something happening in their world that they don't want to see. They don't want to happen in their world and they want to do whatever is in their power to stop it and change it. As a journalist, there's something obvious to do and it's to start reporting. That our job in these moments is to help other people understand what's happened. And then we also have a couple of questions from the chat. How much pressure have you felt in your career to do stories that will get a lot of page views? I've been lucky that I haven't spent too much time thinking about page views. I, I certainly think about audience. Are people going to want to read this? Is it going to be interesting? Is it going to have the components we need? Um, I also use that as a challenge sometimes to make my work better, right? All right, can I do this as a feature story? Can I write the hell out of it so that it goes viral? Or can I, you know, I think about that, right? We've always thought about audience. Page views is different in, in, in it's, it's the current iteration of this, but we've always as journalists thought about audience. Um, and if people are going to be there, people are going to pay attention. It's why, look, we, it's the reason we have comic pages and sports pages in the newspaper, because we knew no one would buy the rest of the newspaper if we didn't have those things in them. But, but I, I say that not to understate the, the real pressures that are existing in a lot of these digital publications around page views, around clicks, around eyeballs. Um, it's, it's really difficult. It can be really difficult for journalists. But what I would say to young journalists and also to their bosses, putting them in these positions in the first place, is that quality work is what gets you those eyes, eyeballs, right? That like doing work that everyone has to read is the best way to make sure everyone reads it. With all your work that you've done in Ferguson, Baltimore, um, I'm kind of curious to know how you proceed with follow-up stories. For for instance, the one you did with Dorian Johnson. Um, what what's your tra um, your process of thinking when trying to revisit those stories. In journalism, there's often a pressure to be first, uh, but I try to think about how can I be the last person to write about something? How do I write the definitive account? Because what's also true is that very often stories are easier to tell when you have less competition, when everyone else has forgotten about the story. Dorian Johnson was one of the biggest gets in the country if you could get an interview with him for about two weeks and then everyone forgot about him. And then five years later, I was the only reporter looking for him. 
So suddenly I was able to get more time with him, to get more detail, to do follow-ups, right? All of a sudden it was easier for me to tell that story and tell it at a higher level. And so I think that that's really, really important to me is something I think about a lot. It's like, how do I be the last person to tell a story? How do I tell a story in a way that feels definitive, that feels real, that feels rooted? And then another chat question. Today, local news is struggling financially as we see local publication, publications shrink their coverage. And as journalists likely to enter the professional field on a local level, what can we do to still pursue the stories that matter, even if they're not the, um, the most likely to gain traction? As I said earlier, I think we want to do stories that <clears throat> people have to interact with and have to read. But also, we want to do stories that make a difference, right? And so sometimes our stories might not be the sexiest, but if they influence change, if they get something fixed, I think that's really important as well. I think one of the other ways we can always trick our bosses into letting us do stories that matter is by telling, is by telling the stories of compelling and interesting people, right? That so often the character or the, the, the narrative of the story can be the thing that makes it interesting and compelling, even if the issue itself is kind of boring. How do you deal with the love and hate that you get from your work? Um, you ignore most of the love and try to make sure the hate doesn't set you make you crazy. Again, I think that for me, a big part of this is reminding myself and remembering that this work is not about any type of short-term gratification, as, much, as lovely as that can be, uh, but rather that this is work that is about recording things that are true, putting information into the public record. And the hope is that I do a body of work that will still be important, will still be grounded, will still carry weight long after I'm gone. We can all be a little thin-skinned, and I think it's important for us to remember that we serve the public, and so we're gonna take feedback. Um, also, it's important to opt out um, and not obsess over the, the vitriol and the hate we receive. I mean, I'm someone who's gotten threats and dealt with all types of stuff, and, and that can be really difficult. We can't pretend that it's not. It's important to be engaged with like mental health professionals and security folks and like all that's really important. And also we have to be willing to step aside from it sometimes. I don't have to live on the internet. I don't have to know what's trending right now. I can, journalism is a profession where we feel as if we have to know what's going on at all times, which forces people to be very, very online. And some of the best journalists I know are not people who are spending a ton of time online because you're wasting so much time and energy and space. I let my work speak for myself. People don't have to like me. They might not, you know, but I'm always going to try to, uh, I'm, I'm always going to try to do work that's going to stand the test of time. What does your ideal day off look like in the, in the you know, talking about self-care? Well, on a real day off, because I, I do a lot of like outside projects and stuff. And so even my days off of my job job are very rarely days off from all work. But for me, a lot of it's, I've got a really nice porch swing on my front porch. And so I'd sit out there, read a book, um, maybe go in a pre-pandemic world, go watch some basketball with my guys, right? And just like, for me, I really, I one of the things I love about journalism is I love being around people. I love talking to people. I love listening to people talk. And so I, I really miss kind of being able to be out and about. Do you feel that police treat you differently than other reporters when you talk to them because they may feel you put them in a bad light sometimes so how do you handle that situation when talking to police um i think that when talking to the police i think there are a few things right i think that it's important to you know the police are conduits of information and we want to get the information uh that we can get from them um and push them and and get it and also be willing to ask them hard questions i think that for such a long time uh 
media has been so reliant on police and police sourcing that at times we're unwilling to look them in the eye and call them liars when they're lying. And I think that it's possible to have a healthily adversarial relationship with powerful people and also have them respect you and trust you and trust your work, right? Either you get things right or you don't. And then kind of changing directions, what changes or what changes in approaches to journalism around conflict between communities with police, their local governments and or each other most impress you? What directions are you moved to go into? Um, you know, I'm really, really interested in, I'm really interested in watching the public opinion shift on policing that there's been polling that have shown how many people, you know, now don't trust police unions or, or be open to the idea of non-police responding to non-violent calls and interactions. And I, I do think we're living in a moment where public opinion is shifting pretty drastically. Uh, what's also interesting is the generational shift. The young people almost all agree and they're just like slowly convincing their parents. Um, and so all of that's been fascinating. There are a lot of cities that are starting to experiment with some of this. And, and what's also true thus far is that even as there have been year over year spikes or, or changes in violence or crime, uh, we haven't seen much abandoning of uh, some of these programs that are being put in place, which is very different than even just a few decades ago. And so I think all that's really interesting. It's really exciting to cover and to watch. You know, I think that we still live in a criminal justice system that was constructed largely during the drug war and, and constructed during the rise in crime in the post-civil rights America. And it's going to be very interesting to watch um, how we might imagine what our criminal justice system looks like and if it's possible to build a new one or a different one. And I'm, I'm just really interested. I really enjoy getting to cover some of the conversations around that and to see if that actually ends up happening. And then if someone feels overwhelmed or distrusting of the news, um, how would you recommend that they pare down their news consum consumption, excuse me, so they're still informed but not so overwhelmed? Sure. I, I mean, the news can be very overwhelming. One of the things I, I've done is, like I said, I, you know, you can curb back your social media a bit. You can turn the push alerts off. Um, find trusted sources or trusted newsletters, right? Go back to just reading a physical newspaper right or watching picking a thing to watch be it 60 minutes or the, you know where we're currently bombarded with news we see it everywhere we get it everywhere it can feel like too much it can be i mean people can even even if it's something like watching the daily show or watching you know where there's a lot of our news and our politics are infects our entertainment in this way as well and so it's possible to get the top line headlines without actually having to sit and watch the news or sit on twitter all day and so I recommend for a lot of people really drawing some boundaries of how much you'll engage, how much you'll consume. Because the other thing is, it's way better to read five things from start to finish and really understand them than just to read 50 things a day and not remember any of it. How did you get your first big opportunity in the journalism world? And how did you capitalize on that? For me, you know, so much of the journalism career was kind of a ladder that I built up. And so I got involved really, really quickly, uh, like I said, high school working a ton, college working a ton. Thinking about journalism is, so much of it is a trade, right? Whether it be writing, reporting, story ideas, interviewing, they're things that the more you do them, the better you get. It's like taking free throws or throwing a football, or right? You know, like you keep doing it, you get better. And so the sooner you can start putting those reps in, the better you're gonna get. And so that was a big part of it. 
worked a ton for my campus publications and then used that to start getting internships, starting with an unpaid weekly internship and then a daily newspaper copying internship, then a daily newspaper writing internship and then just working my way up the ladder. And, and that work built the opportunities in the longer term. And then what in your career are you most proud of or alternatively, what do you think is the most important piece of journalism you have produced? You know, we did a project called Murder with Impunity in 2018. And this project looked at unsolved homicides. It was part of what the Sacramento piece was in. And we did a piece from Richmond, Virginia about a man who witnessed a murder and had to decide if he was going to uh, talk to the police or not. You know, is that the most beautiful piece I've ever in? I like the writing, but it's not like my best piece of writing. Um, I like the context and the investigation, but it's not the best or biggest I've ever done. But it was a piece that, it was a piece where we took someone who otherwise would not appear in this conversation, uh, where we got a source and a, and a person and told a story that otherwise people wouldn't have read or wouldn't have had access to. And we were able to, um, we were able to put them on the front page of the newspaper. And I, so that's a piece I still think about a lot. Um, and, and it's a piece I'm still really proud of. And it seems like asking questions about racism is limited to does it exist in certain settings. How would you recommend going beyond the surface of these, is this racist to you question? You know, I think that we want to talk about, too often in, when we talk about racism, we talk about people's feelings about racism as opposed to outcomes and systems and structures. And so I, I don't have a ton of desire to write or report about people's feelings. I don't really care that much. Um, I, I, for me, I'm much more interested in looking at the systems that create the outcomes that we have. Um, that I'm much more interested in doing reporting that proves definitively that black people are killed at outsized rates by the police than, than doing reporting that focuses on people's opinions of whether or not it's racist, right? And so for me, I've always tried to focus my reporting on the journalism itself, on the systems itself, on the structures itself, on the history, on the context, on on reality as opposed to people's feelings about reality. And then most young, inspiring journalists are striving to end up as a large outlet such as like the Washington Post. Um, so what made you kind of want to pursue other outlets? Look, I mean, I think for me, I don't ever want to leave a job or leave a place until I've learned everything I can learn from it. And I think that that is, um, you know, and I have gotten to do some great, amazing, big projects at the Post, worked on a ton of coverage I was really proud of. Uh, but it was ready to try something new, um, ready to have a different uh, experience or to pursue different storytelling in a different way, you know. And so for me, that required taking a little bit of a risk, taking a little bit of a chance. But I, but I also knew that, you know, in every medium and every type of journalism, the storytelling is what matters. The journalism is what matters. And, and a good story is a good story. And so I wanted to take the time to learn a little bit. Um, and it's so, you know, worth taking a little bit of a risk. But, you know, what's the point of having something you love if you're not willing to take some risk for it? And how are you managing to get human voices and community reporting while social distancing? So it's interesting, you know, uh, it cuts a few different ways, right? It's, it can be harder when you're doing the on the ground reporting, trying to keep your space, not run up to people. But also everyone's sitting around their house, responding to emails, responding to phone calls, like having those. And so I think that that can actually be helpful in some ways that everyone's kind of trapped. Uh, no one's on vacation for seven months. No one's like, you know, like that you have access to people. And so I think that's a really big part of it too. I think that one weakness some people have 
is that some journalists aren't very good at phone report or at phone interviewing, right? And I actually think that phone interviewing sometimes can be better, can be one of the best ways to get information because you're not dealing with the awkwardness of being in front of a person you don't know. And so I think that's a really big part of it for me too, is, is working the phones that way can be really helpful. And in, in your book, um, when we were t- you mentioned uh, you were able to get a lot of voices because you, a lot of people were being very prominent on Twitter um, and it kind of touches upon the, like citizen reporting. Um, and then you also talked about how journalists were clashing with a lot of protesters because they weren't providing information about their protests and the journalists responded well you know, without the, without us, you wouldn't be getting the coverage you seek. Um, do, you, do you think the access to power that you said in your book, um, why journalists tr- traditionally had a monopoly on has been broadened in recent years? Um, for example, with the popular popularization of quote unquote field reporting via Twitter. Yes. Like I said, I think that the process of media has democratized dramatically and drastically. And I think that changes the way these interactions play, uh, play out. Uh, I think that there can be at times the institutional arrogance within media that we want the people who we cover to believe that they need us. And I think there can be some condescension in that stance uh, that in this moment, um, a lot of times these biggest stories are broken, not because of the media, but rather because people themselves talking about things on social media. And I think we have to recognize that there are reasons big swaths of people do not trust us and haven't trusted us. There are, there are reasons that um, people might be disinclined to talk to us and our response to that cannot be self-righteousness. It has to be willingness to listen, willingness to hear, willingness to try again. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that ultimately we can, um, I think it's one of the reasons that ultimately we can um, gain trust and gain trust back is by really putting that time in and not getting immediately defensive. And then a couple more chat questions. Has there ever been a point where opportunities you felt were not given to you when you deserve them? And how did you bounce back in the tough times and keep steady to achieve your dreams? Certainly. Um, there definitely have been moments like that. But I think that, you know, we all have to be our own biggest self-advocate. Uh, we all have to be our own biggest hype men. We all have to be our own biggest supporter and booster. And I think that for me, I've always, especially in this field, in this space where I know that I'm good at what I do and there's something I care about, I've studied for a long time. There's a, I take all those things as challenges. For me, I constantly want to be getting better. I, I constantly want to be learning new things and, and expanding new horizons. And so I always want to, um, you know, if I feel like I've been passed over for something or I've been underestimated on something or I feel like I'm not receiving opportunities I should be, I always want to figure out, okay, what is it that I need to do so I'm being granted those things? How do I, how do I make it so it's not a toss-up? How do I make it so I'm an obvious choice? If I don't have enough feature writing, all right, how do I do some extra feature writing? I, this person got a series because they do more on camera stuff. All right, so I'm going to do some on camera stuff on this. Like, I'm always trying to think about how do I broaden my portfolio, broaden the tools that are in my toolbox, and take away anyone's ability to argue that I'm not capable or can't do or shouldn't do or any of those types of things. And how much does networking and connections play a role in your mind to get opportunities in the journalism community rather than getting opportunity because of your great work? You know, look, okay, I think that those, I think the networks we build are important. 
Um, one of the things I would say to college journalists is sometimes we think about networks too vertically and not enough horizontally. Your friends, your colleagues at the student publications, that's your network. Those are people who are going to know when a job opens up next to them, and they're going to remember whether you were good at your job there or not. They're people who you're going to learn a lot from, right? They're going to be negotiating their first raise, and so now you're going to have a sense of how to do that or vice versa, right? So that horizontal networking, I think, is just as important as vertical networking. But it is important to know people, right? And, and, and more importantly, for people to know you, that when a job opens in the place where they work, um, whose names are popping into their mind, right? Um, I know a lot of people, right? But that's a different set of people than who I have enough fluency with, enough relationship with that they actually, when we have a job opening, I think about them that way. Right versus if they reached out to me, right, and so I think that's something worth. You know, I I got involved very young with journalism organizations, right? Whether it be like SBJ or ONA or NABJ or any, and I think that's a really great place as well to start building these connections. Um, again, it's all relationships. It's not transactional. It's not whose business card you can get. It's not. It's how do you build relationships over time of people who are going to think of you, people who are going to be willing to work with you and interact with you. And I think that that. Uh, I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And then we also have a great chat question. How do you deal with someone that you know does not does not want to have an interview with you? And do you change the way you interview knowing that? Um, I think you always try to make people comfortable, right? And, and so you might want to be, you want, might want to adjust to that, knowing if they seem uncomfortable, they seem off. I think persistence can be helpful. Sometimes you got to chase people around and, and, you know, eventually they will um, respond if only so you stop annoying them. Our job is to be a little bit of a stalker sometimes, right? Even when they don't want you. I, I do think that most people, once they realize that you need this interview and want it and are to keep pursuing it, are going to be willing to give you an answer in one way or the other. And I think that's really important. Um, and once you get the answer, you can kind of make it, you can make it painless. And then we have one final question. We appreciate the time you've given us. Um, do you have any advice for any student journalists um, right now? Um, I think that so. The first thing I'd say, like I said, is start putting those reps in. Start doing that work. Um, that's really that's the most important part of it. Is the work is what matters. I think sometimes we get caught up in these conversations about theory and, and feelings and it's like our job is to show up and do the journalism and, and um, we want to make sure we're spending as much more time doing that than, than talking about it than doing anything else. The best way to learn these lessons, the best way to develop expertise, the best way um, to advance is to, do, is to show up and do the work. Uh, I think that part of it is so, so important. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Well, thank you. Is there anything else you would like to promote right now that you're working no, on? No, I mean, I um, I appreciate you guys having me. If I can ever be helpful to anyone, um, I'm really easy to find. Uh, my Gmail is west.j.lowry at Gmail. Um, I'm at Wesley Lowry on all the social media. And so if you want to follow me on Twitter or IG or whatever, um, but feel free to reach out anytime um, and keep up doing the hard work. I mean, we need a generation of young journalists. It's an exciting time to be in journalism in part because of how precarious it is, because of how much has been upended in our media ecosystem. And we need talented, hardworking people like you doing this job. And so I, I really appreciate um, I really appreciate you all considering it and, and starting to do this work. And like I said, if I can ever be helpful, don't hesitate to reach out.
thank you so much. Um, that concludes our free Q&A with Wesley Lowry. Lowry? <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, thank you so much. This is really insightful, especially as a young journalist.